This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today, we're talking about reading with Shati Moitro. Shati, before we begin, would you mind introducing yourself and your work? Thank you, Sharonik. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting you. me here. I've been a long-time listener of your podcast. Uh, my name is Shati or Swati, whichever is more comfortable to pronounce. I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of English in Gurudash College, University of Calcutta. My research has mostly involved book history and histories of reading in particular. A lot of my work has centered around the 19th century. I am currently working on a project on histories of multilingual print in the Gangetic uh, area. And, you know, when we were discussing what to name this topic, and I was really excited to name this episode just simply reading, because I think the kind of simplicity and the vagueness of it is provocative. Um, so, uh, Shati, without further ado, tell me what the heck is reading? When I proposed this to you again, I thought, because we in academia talk, and especially with both you and I, with our background in literary studies, we talk a lot about reading things in a particular light, reading so-and-so in, in, in such and such fashion. That's really very much part and parcel of our training in our literature departments. Yeah. Uh, however, the kind of reading that I was thinking more about is the physical act of reading. What uh, Shishikumar Dash in a particular essay of his in Bengali once called, he, he defined the word reading as a verb that can take multiple shapes. He calls mm-hmm. it a kriya. And it's really that verb that I am particularly interested in in my work. And I have over the years, including parts of my doctoral dissertation, I have looked at the act of reading, the various practices and cultures of reading, especially centering around uh, women in 19th century Bengal, which uh, was the domain I was looking at at that point of time, uh, as well as the rhetoric surrounding the act of reading itself, which uh, in the 19th century, of course, took on its particular connotations in the specific arena that I was looking at. But even today, uh, this particular kriya that is reading uh, continues to be a fraught verb in that sense. And so that's why I thought having this rather vague title for this discussion session of ours would be fun. So before we move on, can I ask you to uh, 
uh, go back to your doctoral dissertation for a bit. Because, you know, you, you talked about 19th century uh, Bengali women reading, and there are several ways in which that act in that context was um, subversive and revolutionary. So uh, before we move on, could you talk a little bit about that? At the time when I was uh, writing my dissertation, I was uh, taking off from... Uh, the archival work that I had done prior to that. And one of the things that emerged out of the, uh, a lot of the archival documents that I was looking at, uh, pamphlets, um, newspapers, uh, personal tracts, memoirs, uh, one of the things that emerged out of these documents was that a distinct preoccupation with uh, women in particular, and by women we are we mean primarily upper caste Hindu women, and a certain sense of fear and anxiety over their practices of reading. They seem to be emerging out of the general 19th century uh, reformist thrust, which had more or less uh, insisted, which which it had normalized to an extent, an education of a sort for upper caste women, Hindu women, or Hindu and Brahmo women for that matter. Uh, at the same time, there seemed to be a certain sense of anxiety over this very practice of reading. There seemed to be a certain anxiety over what they were reading, what they were doing when they were reading, what they were not doing when they were reading. And of course, my first question was, uh, well, what on earth were they reading? Are they reading pornography? Why are why is everybody so mad about it? Right. Because the whole allegation seemed to be that women were uh, abandoning their domestic responsibilities. There's this one particular lurid track, which I'm so fond of. It describes this woman which, who uh, is a, a very lazy idle housewife who is happy to let her husband go to work without his breakfast because, well, there's nobody to help and she's busy reading the Meghnath Bodh Kabbo. So uh, this is this is an image of horror. This is an image of social, ang- of social anarchy. And I was very curious to know why this practice of reading which on one hand is a virtue because you're talking about uh, increasingly you're talking about educating the upper caste Hindu woman or the upper caste Brahmo woman. And on, and the, on, on the other hand, you have this uh, large body of work which seems to be dedicated towards uh, regulating what they read, how they read, when they read, with whom they read. And it's that what I was trying to look at. And to an extent, I was also trying to understand that beyond uh, this rhetoric, of course, one element was to try to understand what this rhetoric was about. Uh, but beyond that, I was also trying to understand, to the best of my ability, the material practices of reading itself, uh, or whatever traces of it it has left behind. Right. So that that was largely the project that I had taken up. My next question is, how do we or how do you use reading in your work right now? I when I talk about reading. In this particular context, again, well, one has to switch between the two, I think, because uh, whenever I go back to work on the literary studies, and sometimes even when I'm engaging with uh, uh, texts, uh, whatever they might be, that particular interpretive connotation becomes important. But at the same time, mostly when I am looking at it from the this perspective, that of the material histories of reading, I am looking at the act of reading something itself, that very uh, 
a basic act of either reading something off a text or, or, or even a uh, whatever whatever you have it be it a epigraph you're reading or something of the sort or even the act of hearing something and interpreting it in a certain in a certain manner i i think both elements of this uh, i mean both reading and hearing and are part and parcel of this larger question of reading so that is what i am primarily looking at uh, so I know you, in your dissertation, you worked with, on uh, upper class being only women reading in the 19th century. So right now, what other areas are you looking at? Right now, I have, uh, for instance, I have been trying to, one part of the this work has expanded to trying to understand uh and here again, that question of element of hearing becomes very important because uh, what uh, history tells us and what historical investigation tells us that uh, it's not simply silent or solitary reading that was a particular practice among women at the time, but it's also reading together in what is effectively an act of community formation, howsoever transitory, that was particularly important at the time. Uh, it's not uncommon in the streets of India even today, if, if you think about it. Uh, at that particular time, especially, we have evidence of uh, women's gatherings or even uh, a man of the household, whoever they may be, reading out a book which is being which which was listened to by multiple female members of the household, which would include women who would work in that household, so from necessarily uh, lower caste backgrounds. A lot of the women, both upper caste and lower caste, were not necessarily literate or were at best semi-literate. And their participation in this process as listeners is also rather significant. So one thing that I've been trying to look at is, of course, how these dynamics unfolded historically and what it meant for women and the second thing i have also been trying to look at though that moves away from this question of reading is this question is the question of distribution as to how the books reached these women in the first place you know you talked about literacy which made me think of something else which is you said earlier on how this kind of impulse um or like a kind of larger societal impulse in the 19th century towards women's education developed out of an essentially kind of paternalistic uh, movement in Bengal and then in elsewhere. And then, um, so, and then, of course, parallelly, this anxiety about what women are reading and how. So I'm wondering how you use um, your work, this kind of tension between literacy and pleasure, let's say. Um, yes. Uh, th- this, this is a, this is a fundamental tension. And I know that it's, uh, despite my work being Bengal centric, because Bengali is the language that I have access to most, so it has been easy to access primary sources in a way that is harder for me, uh, even in Hindi, which is a language I'm fluent in. But I know there has been, I mean, Francesca Orseni's work on this, for example. Uh, uh, the question of pleasure. Uh, for women is it's is always a very fraught question when it comes to uh, the Indian context in the 19th century. And I dare say, though I of course have not looked at it at all, I dare say we would find similar instances in most other regions as well. Of uh, uh, 
this particular yeah. element of pleasure derived from the written word is seen as something that can destabilize the uh, marriage itself which of course is the fulcrum upon which rests the entire domestic sphere and therefore hindu society rather caste hindu society which is envisioned as a particular problem the act of solitary reading uh, in which you can't really monitor what yeah. a person is and again here the different meaning of reading comes into play what they're reading when they're reading is something that plays into the anxiety of a lot of social commentators which is why that horrific image of the wife who sends off her husband without food is okay. so common in a lot of these narratives uh, in fact in the early 20th century when the periodicals begin to really assert themselves famous bengali periodicals like probashi bongobashi so on and so forth they begin to advertise themselves shamon pitamitra has worked on this uh, they begin to advertise themselves as suitable books to read even when you're alone books that you can read without the fear of you know without the fear of fall without the fear of uh, too much pleasure something that a woman can read on her own without being policed by male members of her family that is how they position themselves in the market so to speak this is turning out to be kind of a companion episode to this episode with that we did on neurasthenia where um, you know the invention of neurasthenia as a diagnostic category um, in especially in the US served to kind of you know in some ways women were diagnosed with neurasthenia and they that invisibilized uh their literary practices and in that case more writing than reading but i think you know this is really interesting how the these two episodes and are. in fact in the indian context at large and the bengali context in particular uh in the early 20th century in particular these fears do shape up in a slightly different direction in the sense that if you take a look at the activities of women revolutionaries at the time who Oh, members of the Communist Party, members of Jugantor, uh, uh, even women increasingly becoming part and parcel of the nationalist movement. Uh, in, uh, when they talk about the significance of reading and books to their revolutionary indoctrination and their participation in the movement, you begin to realize that uh, perhaps there was more to this concern about pleasure than simply a question of uh, sexual control it's also an active uh, participation in the domain of politics that is beginning to take shape at this time and it's not always the polite likable politics of the women's uh, organizations so that's something that's definitely coming into play in the early 20th century and i personally find that fascinating you know this was coming so let me ask you my final question which is how will reading save the world will it i don't know if it will save the world but honestly uh, there is no substitute to the pleasure of the word whether or whether you listen to it or whether you're reading it from a page or a Or, or or a PDF on your iPad or a Kindle, so yes, that's something that, in many ways, one of the reasons why I 
I, I think what really drove me towards this work is the fact that I was always, as a child, uh, always reading books all the time to a point where I had to be taken away from my books so that I could focus on my other books. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, I do think uh, whether or not it will save the world is a different matter. Do we, we, do we have, we do have superheroes who do research, don't we? Right. So perhaps that's how we'll save the world. And even if we don't, we'll at least have a lot of fun in the process. You know, before we end, uh, can I ask you, because when we were discussing this episode, we talked briefly about how your work relates to you know, print culture studies and book history. So could you kind of sign us out with a little bit of like giving us a hint of what you're working on next and how, you know, you're working within these fields? Again, I tend to work on a lot of things at the same time. This is a, call it a superpower of mine or a lack of focus, whatever you will. <laughs> I have been working on, uh, let me tell you about uh, one particular project I've been looking at at the moment. Uh, it's rather ambitious and I don't know where it's leading to at the moment. But one of the things that I have been trying to do is... And uh, part of this, uh, Obhijit Gupta's recent book, for instance, does a little bit of this work as well, which is a very important pointer for me. Uh, I've been trying to, because my own work has been centered primarily around one language and one region, uh, geographically rather limited. I've been hoping to expand a little bit more and try to understand the connected histories of print in the Gangetic region, where, as we know, uh, in the 19th century, again, there is a, enough historical evidence for this, uh, the flow of print uh, took place alongside the flow of the river with the emergence of multiple centers of print along the banks of the river, be it uh, Calcutta or your hometown, Sri Rampur, or uh, if we look further, Munger, Patna, Benares, Allahabad, and then of course you have Kanpur and Delhi, which are also important uh, centers of the, uh, the their cantonment towns. So they have their own dynamics of print. So this is a particularly interesting, uh, which we, uh, I won't call it a phenomenon, rather a historical development, which uh, helps me expand beyond my. Uh, immediate geographical location. Uh, so that's what first drew me to this project. The second thing that drew me was, of course, the fact that most of this uh, centers of print historically were centers of multilingual print, which includes Calcutta and Sri Rampur. We tend to privilege the language of a particular region, and part of it, this has to do with our own facility with a particular language. So, for instance, Calcutta as a center of Bengali vernacular print, even though uh, which has led to a neglect, a huge neglect of Hindi, Urdu, and other forms, uh, other print emerging out of Calcutta at the same time. Sri Rampur at one point was producing print in 40 languages. Uh, so, this particularly the multilingual turn in print studies is something that has helped me grasp this in a certain way. So I've been hoping to trace the emergence of print in these centers. I've, uh, at this moment, I'm focused on Calcutta and Benares. And while I I remain primarily focused on the Bengalis who would travel and uh, who continue to 
print and publish wherever they went. This was something that they did very helpfully. Uh, at the same time, I'm interested not simply in the, their production, but in these centers as flourishing centers of multilingual print and what that means for how we understand print culture in 19th century India. I think there is enormous potential for this. You could potentially look at this in any other way, uh, if in, in uh, any other geographical location in 19th century India. And uh, some of these questions I think would still be pertinent, but I have. Uh, it's easier for me to access at least three languages, which is Hindi, English, and Bengali. So I've, I've, I've been, I've uh, located myself here, and frankly, most of my work right now is exploratory. I don't know where I'm going, but it's it's interesting. That's all I can say for now. You know, we can't wait to read whatever uh, this becomes in the near future. Shati, thank you so much for um, coming to High Theory and talking to us about reading. Thank you so much, Sharunik. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharunik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.